If you're struggling to attract new staff or your team is experiencing burnout, pick up your phone and call Guardian Vets. Through virtual team solutions like after-hour triage, daytime virtual receptionists, callbacks, and telemedicine, Guardian Vets can help you have happy staff, happy clients, and a thriving business. Go to www.guardianvets.com and check Veterinary Success Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us section to get a free consultation and receive 50% off your first month of service. Don't wait. Check out guardianvets.com now. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas, and I'm excited that you're here. And with that, we're going to jump into this week's podcast here in just a second. We're going to hit up our sponsors that help make the show possible. There's lots of companies that I believe in that I think help veterans across the board, whether it's find a job, hire talent, become more efficient in their practice, all those things, right? So these sponsors mean a ton to me. So I know a lot of people will fast forward or skip through them. But if and when you're looking for help and some of the solutions they offer, I would highly, highly encourage you to check them out. And so with that, no further ado, jump into the ads and we'll get right into the show. So thank you for listening and uh, enjoy. I get it, Isaiah. You talk about Bitcoin all the time. Well, as I go out and about, I continually hear the demand for any more Bitcoin education, or I don't really understand. I hear you talking about it. I know you're passionate about it. I know you have a lot of conviction, but I need more info. And that's where Bitcoin for Vet Med really came from, was taking, hey, the 10,000, 100,000 hours of time that I've spent and distill it down into bite-sized courses and walking you through of getting a foundational why, a little bit of understanding the technical side of Bitcoin, and then how to grapple with the fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and just the things that you hear throughout the media and giving you the ability to up your Bitcoin knowledge to go from zero to hero and feel a lot more comfortable saying, okay, this is something that matters and I want to take some of the value that I create and save into Bitcoin. So head over to bitcoinforvetmed.com or click the link in the show notes. If you're struggling to attract new staff or your team is experiencing burnout, pick up your phone and call Guardian Vets. Through virtual team solutions like after-hour triage, daytime virtual receptionists, callbacks, and telemedicine, Guardian Vets can help you have happy staff, happy clients, and a thriving business. Go to www.guardianvets.com and check Veterinary Success Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us section to get a free consultation and receive 50% off your first month of service. Don't wait. Check out guardianvets.com now. Finding a job or finding a veterinarian shouldn't be a waste of time. Enter an offer first. Paul Diaz and team have created something really special with Offer First. Some of my favorite reasons are as follows. Candidates and employers will both have values aligned on the first step, not the last. The sign-up process, quick and simple, no resume required. So if you're looking for a job, but you aren't really sure, it's as easy as scrolling on Zillow for a home. And finally, if you have a great match, it's based on your each unique requirements, not random keywords. If you want to learn more, listen to episode 179 with Paul Diaz. We cover all of that. The other exclusive great thing that you're going to get from this ad read and from Paul is I convinced him to give an exclusive discount to listeners of this podcast. So for owners, you're getting a 20% discount on both the placement of any candidate, but also access to the platform. Use VSP if you go to offer first or the easiest way is a link in the show notes. So check it out. Associates, those looking for a job, same thing. Use the link in the show notes. Use VSP if you go directly to offer first. But I will donate and Paul will donate to a veterinary nonprofit of your choosing. So each person that signs up gets a vote. Your votes actually count, which is incredible. And so I'll be reaching out. I will handle that. But there's going to be a donation made for any associate or any job seeker that adds on the platform. We want to make sure that not only does the platform help to make sure that you find a better fit, better culture, better role, but it's also doing good in veterinary medicine. Okay, so link in the show notes is going to take you to offer first. It's going to automatically apply that, but also use code VSP if you go to offer first directly. And offer first is changing the game of veterinary recruiting. I want each and every one of you to benefit from it. So check them out today. Find out for yourself why my friends at Shepherd Veterinary Software are the fastest growing practice management software. They're doing something right. Founded by Dr. Cindy Barnes, Shepard is an intuitive, easy-to-learn, streamlines practice management. Built for vets, by vets, it works for you and your team so you have more time to spend on what's most important, your patients. 
Shepard automatically updates the medical records, adds services to the invoice, generates discharge instructions, and so much more. Bring home more stories and less stress. Check them out at shepherd.vet. Again, that's shepherd.vet. All right. Today, I am joined by Dr. Jason Ballara, who is a veterinary surgeon and the founder of Lark Capital Group. He is an experienced multifamily real estate investor. The goal of Lark Capital and Jason overall is to help veterinarians create passive income using recession-resistant real estate investing. Jason, thank you so much for being here. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, me too, Isaiah. Thanks for having me on. I'm definitely excited about this. Yeah, so I think we'll probably split some of the conversation and kind of go, okay, vet med stuff and then real estate stuff. So I'm going to start at the beginning. I know some people probably know who you are. Um, we were just joking before we clicked record. You were at VFS, which mutual friend of the podcast, Meredith Jones puts on, which is a great event. Highly recommend it for folks that maybe haven't attended in the past. It's a really, really great event. But so they might know you from there. But why surgery for you, right? Veterinary medicine is kind of this huge ecosystem with lots of different tracks and specializations and niches. But how did you end up kind of going down the veterinary surgeon route? So I guess probably started even before vet school. I worked in construction a lot. I just really like working with my hands. So that's kind of maybe the backstory there. But then as some of my experiences, veterinary experiences leading up to vet school and beyond leading up to vet school, specifically one of the general practices I worked at, at a young age, just volunteering. I remember this still like it was yesterday. We fixed a fracture. And quite frankly, as a veterinary surgeon, I know now we didn't do it right. But <laughs> that experience was so great to me. I just really enjoyed that process. And fortunately, as they often do, that dog did well, despite the fact that we didn't do it by the book. I also spent some time working in research. I'm from originally from Massachusetts. I worked, worked in the research department at Children's Hospital in Boston. And so, and what we were doing, a lot of those projects were based on surgical interventions for children that had specific disease processes. A lot of it was heart-based defects and heart replacements and things like that. And so that was all surgery. It was all surgery. And I was like, I love this. This is just amazing. I love being in there. And at the time I was a technician, but these are human MDs undergoing their fellowships and they knew I was interested. They knew I enjoyed it and they would sometimes let me scrub in. So some phenomenally amazing experiences and seeing surgery there. But when I went to vet school, I still didn't know you could specialize in surgery when I started. And so I had a mentor my second year in vet school. We could do these, basically they set aside half a Tuesday where you could go shadow someone in essentially whatever sort of approved bit of an externship. And so I did that with one of my mentors, Rob McCarthy. He actually worked at Tufts, but also had a mobile surgery business. And so I went with him, I think it was maybe the second day. I was like, this is what I want. How do I do this? This I want to do this. I don't want to do anything else. This is amazing. This is the job I want in veterinary medicine. And he said, work your butt off, make sure everybody in the surgery department knows you. He literally was like, do these four or five things. And I spent that year, the next two years after that, doing those things and continued that into my internship. And I was like, this is all I want. So frankly, I think if I hadn't become a surgeon, I might be out of veterinary medicine by now because I love it that much. And I kind of don't want to do the other stuff. So it's definitely a passion to me. Love it. And anything else from kind of what you're doing either today or kind of the journey through veterinary medicine that you think is helpful or has helped shape kind of why you took this other path or have this other interest that is kind of the real estate stuff that you're doing? Because sometimes there are those moments in life where there is this change or it's a mindset shift or just something that hits you and you're like, wow, I need to do something about this. Yeah. I mean, related to sort of my background and truly I worked in construction since I was a teenager. So I was involved in real estate on a small scale even then. And I recognized that ownership was the way, to me, seemed like the way out. Came from humble background, raised by a single mom of two. We didn't have money. So we moved a lot. We lived in apartments. I saw, I want to own a house. And then when it came time that I decided I could do that. I didn't have any money. I didn't have really the means to do that. So I did the classic, buy the worst house that you can get your hands on and fix it up. So I did a ton of DIY and I just kept doing that. 
throughout vet school, even afterwards, throughout my residency, whenever I could, within my own homes, within friends' homes. And so the two really grew together, but that's different than what we do now. I'm not sure if that kind of answers the question there, Isaiah, but that's from a background standpoint, I was always doing it. I was always excited about construction. Like I said, I like working with my hands. So it's like, to me, building houses, fixing fractures, it's not that different. I'm effectively a highly educated carpenter is, is a, really the way I look at it. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it does. And we'll kind of get there. But one of the things you just talked about is like a humble upbringing. And uh, I think that's one thing that I share as well. Again, everybody's kind of story and path is different, but how was money thought of or was it discussed? Or I love asking that question, what did money mean growing up? So yeah. you can kind of take that any way that you want. At a young age, it meant we didn't have any. That was it. I mean, it was just kind of like we could do mostly the minimum, right? Needed to pay rent, needed to have some level of food. And so my mom did the best she could. She worked as a waitress. She did what she could, but it was... I'm sure we're not the only ones. I'm sure people had it worse than us. But again, in the beginning, the money conversation was scarcity. It just isn't enough. And then when I started to work, which like I said, is, was at a young age. I mean, I got my first job. I think it was 13, maybe 14. And I really never stopped. I, I was working through high school and all of that. Then it became, I don't want to say it as status, but it became my way of if I work hard enough, I can take care of the people around me. So I guess a good example of that is, like I said, we didn't have a lot of money. This is going to age me a little bit. But I, with my job, bought our family our first VCR. Anybody who's 30 years older or younger doesn't know what a VCR is. But I bought our family our first VCR. And I look back at it as a proud moment. And that became, and I don't honestly know what word to put on this or what definition of how I felt about money at that time, but I definitely thought work hard, work hard, work hard. I can get more money to help people around me. What I didn't know that I wish I knew then and kind of in the coming years is how to use that money to work for me. I was always doing more and more to trade time for money. So it was like, I would have a job and then I'd say, I want something or I, I need, need a car repair or something like that. Okay, I'll take on another side job on this construction project or whatever it is. It was always just, I would work more. And so that was my association with money. And that worked pretty well for a long time. But if I could go back in time, that's something I might <laughs> have tried to shift earlier. Sure. So to me, it sounds like early on, it was the barometer of success was like, how much money can I get to take care of those around me? And then I love the idea of trading time for money and how to think about that in a different way. And we'll get into some of that stuff later on. But I think the real estate side of it, of being interesting to you was just due to, yeah, hands-on. I like the carpenter quote or mention that that's funny because you have such a specialized skill set that you definitely can do a lot of stuff there. But why real estate over other things? Was it the best way that you found that you could do this hey, I can take the money, it can work for me, I don't have to give up my time. And is that kind of why that focus came alongside of the interest there? Because I get that you're going to find certain things in life. I think it is important in veterinary medicine to have something that you're interested outside of just the medicine side of it in vet med. So for you, I'm sure there's other things, but real estate was one of those. But I'd love to understand that a little bit better of finding that as the, it's a passion, but it's also a great kind of lucrative way to learn and do some things. Definitely in the beginning, it was out of necessity, right? There's books and people do podcasts and speaking engagements on things. Well, House Hack is just having roommates, right? Like that's really what it is. And so I was doing that when I bought the first house because I needed that to afford to pay the mortgage. To me, a lot of this House Hack type stuff and everything was just survival. It's a great idea. I'm not saying that people shouldn't do those things, but to put a name on it and describe it as this investing technique, I think a lot of people are just did it, right? Because that was what made sense to be able to purchase something. But I think to answer your question in the beginning, I definitely was trading time for money. It was always just take on more work. But real estate was something very tangible to me that I could have an impact on. And I still feel that way, whether I'm doing it myself or not. I still feel real estate is something that I can actually input or force value to. So I felt that way in the beginning. I think some of it 
certainly comes down to timing. And so I bought my first house in 2004. Everybody knows what happened in 2008. A lot of people don't talk about what happened from like 2004 to 2008 when the value of my house went up two and a half times and I refinanced and I used that money to pay off bills. So I saw the power of real estate there. Also, through nothing else but just blind luck, I sold the house right before the crash. So I didn't get impacted by it. Lots of people got impacted by it. I didn't. I saw what happened. And I just kind of kept doing that. I always bought houses that were undervalued and needed work. And so I saw, okay, I do this work. Someone does the work for me. A lot of times it was me, but someone does the work. We can increase the value in this asset. And so at one point I owned a three family in Boston. A lot of this stuff was just things I lived in. Our own house here now in LA, it's worth more than twice as much as I bought it from. Some of that's because LA is a fast appreciating market. Some of that's because I put a ton of work into it. So it's just kind of like, I always saw that as something that I could directly have an impact on with, even if the market's good or bad, I don't have to rely on those things because I can impart some sort of value. Yeah. And so talking about commercial, multifamily, all these different things, we can get into some of the details and weeds. And I think there's gonna be certain folks that will follow and track and have, have had the, done the research or are interested in it and want to dig in further. But so let's talk about LARC Capital and what you're doing today and kind of where do you play? What is the kind of ideal fit of where you're creating that value? Yeah. So LARC Capital is essentially it's a real estate holding company, basically. And what we do, our function is real estate syndication. And syndication for listeners that don't know, in a very sort of simplistic way, it is the partnering of real estate operators with real estate investors. And they get classified, the operators are, are often referred to as the general partners or the sponsors, and the investors are referred to as limited partners. I don't like the name. I think it implies that they're maybe not important to the deal. They're incredibly important to the deal. What it means, the reason they're called limited is limited liability. So they don't have any of the liability that you have as a general partner or a sponsor. So just to sort of clarify, it's not an importance name. So we buy multifamily real estate and we do basically just what I talked about in terms of called value add, but basically we go in there, renovate, do what we can to increase the value. We're just doing it at a large scale. So it's in a way a bit of a large scale flip project, but it is done over, if you flip a single family house, you're trying to do that in three, six months. When you talk about real estate syndication, this is over years, three, five, sometimes seven years to kind of complete that business model and stabilize the asset and gain all the value out of it you can for the investors. Got it. And why do you think real estate is an attractive asset to own in general? And what makes it able, and maybe this is part of what you're doing as well, because well, I'll let you answer that first before I ask the second question. Sure. Yeah. I think it's a valuable asset to own honestly, for the same reasons I always have, because it's a tangible thing that I can do something about. Maybe just as an example, I contrast that to the stock market. Stock market goes up. It's not a bad place to invest, but I can't do anything about it. I just have to sit there and hope that Tim Cook does a good job with Apple and that I guess it's not Jeff Bezos does a good job with Amazon. Like I need to hope that someone else is doing a good job with those different companies and if they do, and also public sentiment is that they do a good job, then those stocks will go up. But again, I can directly impact value and increase what real estate is worth by it being a tangible asset. Got it. And then what makes it able, and I know I kind of tease this out in the intro, from a generate passive income and be recession resistant? Because I think the passive income piece, and, and we'll unpack some of the stuff as we go through, is one side. And then the recession resistant, I want to get into those because I think they are kind of slightly separate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Maybe they aren't too. I don't want to lead the answer there too much. I think they are two separate things to look at, but intertwined is probably the best way to put it. But I think from a recession resistant standpoint, the idea is that people always need a place to live. And so when we say that, that's where mostly that comes from, is that people always need a place to live. There are other things that contribute to that, I guess, recession-resistant name. One being oftentimes in a recession, you're talking about higher interest rates, 
homes might be hard to purchase. For example, right now, as we're filming this, home ownership is as expensive as it has ever been in history because of the interest rates and because of the demand. So if interest rates are high, but demand is also high, normally you would expect interest rates being high are going to drop prices. But if demand is high, those prices aren't going down. So now people are, that have to buy are having to buy houses at, essentially, if you look at it from a monthly payment standpoint, like more than double it would have cost them to buy that house two years ago. And so home ownership right now is incredibly expensive, which then in turn means more renters, right? And so we invest in multifamily where people need a place to live and they're going to rent there. So it's almost like a trickle down effect, I guess. But the way that ties into cash flow, because recession resistant is like, we need demand for our asset to have it be of value. The cash flow is the other side of the coin is what are we providing for our investors? And there are a whole bunch of different factors that impact that. One of them is demand, but also it is interest rates and it is rental rate increases and things like that. So there's probably more things that go into the actual cash flow side of it and versus it being recession resistant. And then on the comment with rates being higher, but demand being high, right? So one of the things I was going to kind of bring up is rates are as high as they've been in almost 20 years. I think we're back to pre-great financial crisis from a rates perspective, and they've been artificially low for a while. And so rates and property values are pretty intertwined where you're going to see property values and the rates kind of coincide where if rates go up a lot, property value has to go down. And I think that's a big contributor to property values going up so much as you had artificially low rates. I think you kind of already answered it a little bit with demand, but at some point, if it gets so unaffordable and then renting, which I know the stats on renting at the moment are still where the break even or the what makes the most sense for the individual because they're going to make individual actions. Renting makes a lot more sense, but even I here in Indiana, about a house in 2021, right? Rates were still low, but the new apartments that are going up in the place that we're living, the two bedroom is the same price as our mortgage. That's ridiculous to think about that because as a builder, as a multifamily owner, they have to, with rates increasing, justify the cost that put in that project. So it's still all somewhat relative. Where am I missing that? How am I looking at that wrong? Yeah, you're not looking at it wrong, but you are comparing two different asset classes. So you're comparing single family homes to multifamily or commercial real estate. And so from a consumer, the homeowner some, or someone who needs to live somewhere, whether that's as a homeowner or as a renter, yes, it doesn't look right. But I saw this quote once that I actually think is a pretty interesting thing to mention here. If you are renting, your rent is the maximum you will pay in the month. If you're a homeowner, your mortgage is the minimum you will pay in a month, right? So as a homeowner, you have all of these other expenses, taxes, insurance, maintenance, all of that stuff that you have to somehow account for that you don't have as a renter. There's like a million different directions we could go with this because this is what economists spend hours and days talking about. But basically, your point is a good one, but they're not necessarily comparable in terms of how we look at it from an investment class, I guess is is the way I would answer that question. And I don't know, I'm happy to go into more detail. I just don't want to kind of start going in the weeds in one direction or the other. Yeah, sure. Well, no, and I, I, I agree that a primary home is not an investment. Totally agree with that. I think that needs to be made clear. What I'm saying is as the individual, it's like, I need somewhere to live, as you mentioned, right? You need somewhere to live. Looking at what are the options and where things are, it's not like rents are going to stay low when housing is ridiculously expensive. They're going to continue to move up in cost. And at the end of the day, if you don't see wages increase with that, there is a limit on the rental side of things. The same way that there's the limit on the single family house that someone's going to buy. And so if you see that happening where, hey, we can raise rents, we can raise rents. It's like at some point, there's just not going to be people that can pay that. and knowing that the cost to put a lot of these projects up and do a lot of the numbers, a lot of the math, a lot, how the loan was financed happened a long time ago. It doesn't happen the same way that we've seen rates 
in the rate environment we're in today. So I think that was more where I was going with it is saying comparatively, even just in Indiana and in my community, just seeing how expensive the rents are going and where that's moving. Now, again, nice area, brand new apartments, all these other stuff. There's caveats there, but it just is wild to think how and who is going to live there at that rate. So that's the gridlock right now. That's why transaction volume, both on the residential side and commercial side is down a lot because people like yourself, you bought your house in 2021. You've probably got a rate in the threes, maybe even lower. You've got something there. But for someone to buy your house from you right now is going to have a rate that's probably best seven and a half percent. And so someone else to buy your house is going to have a mortgage payment because in reality, your value has gone up. So you're going to sell it for more than you bought it for. And they're going to have a rate that's more than double. So if you look at it that way, the people that are moving into, I need a place to live that isn't home, you have the choice of home ownership, which right at this moment is going to cost them a ton, or they can go into an apartment, which might also cost them a ton, but not as much as that home ownership would right now. You're right. Like we're in a spot where it's hard to know for about two years rental rates were going up at an unsustainable amount. They were going up in the teens sort of quarterly. It was crazy. And no one ever thought that was sustainable. And that's not how anyone is projecting it to happen going forward either. So when we are putting values on these particular properties, again, if you say residential real estate versus commercial, residential is entirely based on comps, right? It's based on what do my neighbors sell their house for? That kind of thing. It's based on location. Commercial real estate is based on NOI, which is net operating income, which is essentially income minus expenses. So there are two sides of the lever to push there, right? So you can, if your income's not increasing as fast, you work on decreasing expenses. So there are ways to change the valuations. And this is why we like value add because we can actually go in there and improve a property versus you can buy a brand new apartment building, but your returns will be much lower. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about, and it doesn't necessarily exactly the way that you're doing it, but in general, right? Leverage, real estate, how it's used, how to think about it. Does that make it more risky, less risky? Again, I have thoughts, but want to hear from you kind of the way that things you've seen or how it's structured today. The debt structure is, I find, tremendously important, maybe the most important thing, especially when it comes to large-scale commercial real estate. You can look at it a couple of different ways. So the lender, whoever that is, it's a little different than when you buy your own house, but whatever. The lender is the single largest investor in that property, right? So the lender does far more underwriting, due diligence, evaluation than any investor will in the properties. So if a lender, the more they're willing to leverage, probably the better they think the deal is. But we saw people got people get burned by high leverage, right? So when it's a hot market, it was just like 2008, just like 2021. When it's a hot market, people start to go higher and higher on their leverage. And the reason why you would do that is because it increases the returns. Because I don't want to get into all the math here, but if anybody has questions about this, feel free to reach out. But basically, the, the higher your leverage, the better the returns are going to be for the investors. And so that's why it's exciting to use high leverage. The problem is, if you have to sell suddenly in a down market and you have high leverage, that's when you can get in trouble. So Right now, you can't get high leverage. That's not, it's just not really an option. But this may be a long winded answer to your question. I think leverage is if you want to grow wealth, you need to use it to your advantage, but you need to use it smartly. The Dave Ramsey do everything in cash, it's incredibly safe, but you'll never grow your wealth that way. You just never will. And that's okay if that's what people want to do. But if you're looking to, actually invest for the future and things like that, you're going to be using leverage in a way that you just need to do in a smart way. If you can improve the health of an animal, you do it, right? Of course. That's what makes veterinarians special. You're mission driven. My friends at LifeLearn are the exact same way. 
For over 25 years, they've been partnering with you and your peers, providing affordable, customizable online software solutions. These solutions save time, increase efficiency, and assist in managing all aspects of operations. Why? They want to help you improve your partnership with pet owners to improve pet health. LifeLearn has award-winning digital media solutions and are leading the pack as they prioritize having extensive veterinary knowledge throughout their teams. That difference is seen, it's heard, and it's read by thousands of people across the country. Relax, grow, and thrive with LifeLearn. Click the link in the show notes for an exclusive offer to see how LifeLearn can allow you to get back to what you do best. I think the idea of Leverage in real estate, yeah, leverage cuts both ways. It can amplify, it can make you feel like, hey, I'm really smart and I'm doing awesome. Or it can be, ooh, this just got bad, we're upside down, and now all of a sudden the math isn't working nearly as well, and this is now a disaster, right? And so when applied appropriately, leverage can certainly help. Real estate commercially, I mean, it's usually using what? percentage, like 75% on a deal, 80% on a deal for a commercial. Is that right? Or is that still too high? That's high now. It was two years ago, 75, 80% was pretty standard, but now 60 is probably about 60, 40. Yeah. Yeah. It's if you're going to get about 60, 40 or 60% leverage. And another thing on this point, just to maybe this goes across the boards for essentially anything you're investing in, right? I know you're a Bitcoin guy, like stocks, real estate, Bitcoin, you don't make or lose any money until you sell, right? So until that point, it's all on paper. So that's another point as far as leverage, right? If you're not forced to sell, you just wait till the market goes back up. So that's, a, to me, the timing of when that debt is going to come due might be more important than the actual leverage amount. Because over time, real estate goes up. Over time, the stock market goes up. That is what has happened for hundreds of years. It's not, that's not like a new thing I just made up. It's the reality of history. And so you have down markets. We had down markets in 2008 to 2010. But guess what? If you bought real estate in 2010 to 15, you're good now. You're doing really well. So it's, I think using that time to your advantage is almost more important than actual exact leverage percent. Yeah. And I think the comment that real estate goes up, stock market goes up. The question is why? Why does it go up? And we can go on a fun tangent, but why do you think it goes up? Inflation. Just over time. Why is it just guaranteed that those things go up? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a great question that frankly, I don't know the exact answer other than that's, I think, yeah. I mean, cost of goods go up. It's a wheel, right? Cost of goods go up, cost of labor goes up. What's produced by those goods and labor goes up. People need to live in those things. They come around. It's a cycle that truly I don't exactly understand. I just look at it from a historical perspective. Like this is what happens over time. I am not an economist that could answer that question in any more detail. It's a great question that frankly would Most be cool to understand. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, prices go up over time. I guess you could say it that way. Prices of when I started driving, I could get a gallon of gas for, I think, 89 cents something like that. Now, well, I live in California, so I think it's $6 a gallon here now. That's a big difference over time, but also that's 30 years. And so prices go up. We sometimes see, like we just had an episode of hyperinflation where the prices go up at a rapid rate. And that's when people notice because prices are always going up. We just only notice it when it's sudden. It's like the interest rates the only reason it matters, the only reason it's a problem right now is because they raised them higher and faster than ever in history. Nobody could predict that because it could never, it had never happened before. So it's when things happen suddenly that it gets noticed. It's, it's not so much, that's why market crashes matter so much. You have the big crashes that happen suddenly, but like if you look at since 2008, the market's been up and down multiple times. It's happened multiple times over the last couple of years. You have to recognize that ultimately over time, the curve moves up and to the right. Yeah. I don't want to distract us too much, but I think that's a very much a big topic that I'm not an economist either. I'll opine on the topic a little bit just because it is of interest, but we live in a credit-based economy. You talked about with leverage. So the way that loan it gets derived for an apartment deal or multifamily or even your primary residence, right? We live in a credit-based economy. 
So they're going to go and there's certain institutions that can create this money. The money's not coming from the savings of people that have put money in the bank, right? They just create that loan out of nothing from that standpoint. And then it is something where you then as the property owner or the person that's buying it, you know, pay it back over time. So now it becomes an asset on that bank's balance sheet. And so if you have assets, the gradual inflation, and when you think about inflation, think about the money in circulation, right? So what we did in 2020 and 2021 is we created 40% of all the dollars that have ever been created in a 24 month span. So yeah, of course, prices soared and went up because we did something we've never done before, which is really irresponsible. And the reason we raised interest rates was to cool off the inflation. So the thought process is if you start the fire, but you're also the firefighter, you're trying to balance these two things, which doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. And so thinking about it from that standpoint, the reason why real estate stocks, all these other things go up is if you have more money in the system that continues to expand, and it has to expand based on the way that our economy is built on, which is a credit-based economy where it always has to be expanding. Of course, these assets have to go up in value. It's the only way for it to continue or you see the kind of deflationary shock. So deflation is not necessarily bad. Falling prices is actually a good thing. It's natural. That's what technology does, right? Technology makes things cheaper. The challenge is you have to continue to expand the money supply in this credit-based economy or it will all go to hell in a handbasket. And so that's why real estate stocks, other things go up in value because they kind of have to. And so that's why you also see kind of a growing have and have nots. I know we chatted on this a little bit in our previous conversation. If you already own the assets, right? You bought the real estate in 2012, you're in a great spot because you were able to have that asset and then you can see it continue to grow. It's harder for the people that are trying to get the assets in these kind of situations where if you already have it, you're going to see the wealth accumulate as more monetary units are created. And then if you don't have the assets, you're kind of on a hamster wheel trying to catch up and you need to find a way where maybe it is you're trading more of your time for money to then invest in or buy these assets that you want. And so it can feel tricky and difficult. But I mean, that's the way that I would briefly try to explain it because it is absolutely a very convoluted and complex system. But it's like, hey, if you're going to continue to create more units, of course, the assets are going to go up in value. And that's the way to you offset it. I think that's the key thing, right? Everyone's searching for a way to how do I store and retain or grow my purchasing power. And real estate has been a great one for a long time. Yeah, I agree. I think, and that's a great kind of explanation of it. Again, the intricacies of all of this are well beyond me, but it's a great explanation. And, and I think history is great. We can use history and look at it and say, this is what has always happened in the past until something happens that didn't happen in the past. And now you're like, well, how do, is it different now? And it's like, we've had over the last few years, a series of unprecedented events, starting with COVID. Then, as you mentioned, they printed all the money. Then they cranked up the interest rates. Everything is reactionary, right? It's like, ah, oh, this thing happened. But it's a little bit probably of a broken system in reality. As you said, I like the firefighter and fire starter analogy. You're trying to fix your own mess by, in reality, pulling one lever right? We're going to raise interest rates. Hopefully that fixes what we just did over these last two years. But it's just a tricky thing to get balance on. I think, as you mentioned, people that are trying to get in that, right? You can always look back in history and say, I wish I started this at this time in history and we can't time the market. But that's why I think it's important to, you sort of don't want to stop investing just because it's not a good market. You just want to think and look at where can I get in and what looks be the best for the next cycle. And I think aside from the market factors, that's why we like value add, because those things are not necessarily dependent on the market, right? It's the same thing, like people watch HGTV and they watch all the flipping shows. First of all, people love it. They like to see that transformation. They're like, this is so cool. That's a lot of why I like doing fractures because it's like, here's this <laughs> shattered bone. Look at how pretty I made it at the end. And it's the same, we're doing the same thing just on a larger scale. And so you are actually imparting value there versus just waiting for the market to go one way or the other. So one thing that you talked about earlier was it's a tangible thing and you have a little bit more control over in destination, right? Similar to, hey, if you're a practice owner, you own your own business, you have a little bit more control on who you work with and all these different things versus if you're an associate and you don't get to dictate who's sitting in the front desk and who is your peers and who you work with, right? So being able to kind of control your own destination is important. And you made a comment, you know, hey, Tim Cook, and I can't remember the other one that we used, but it's like, hopefully they'll do something, they'll do it good. 
and you can kind of directly impact the work that you do within the real estate side. The one issue or challenge or pushback I'd have, and I'd be curious what your answer on that is, there are still a lot of things that are outside of your control. So you have a city and municipality that may or may not care to respect a whole lot of property rights. You're in LA, I'll pick on California, right? I don't think California is a great location that respects personal property rights at the moment. You have property taxes. So Austin, it has the hottest zip codes. And back in my financial advisor days, there's someone that bought a house, bought property. And I think it was a primary residence. So again, slightly different, but their property taxes went up 35%. How do you pencil that in? And then you have repairs and maintenance, which you're going to have regardless. But how do you address some of those concerns? How do you think about that when there's a lot of things in your control, but there are a number of things where someone else can dictate a change and you just kind of have to go with it? Yeah, it's a great question because we'll never be in control of everything in our lives from a business standpoint. It's like I can be in a surgery, something goes wrong, anesthesia-wise, we have to make adjustments. So you can never be fully in control. And I think, honestly, that's why a lot of people don't invest just the fear of the unknown, I think is a big part of it. And so, and I just mean in general, a lot of people don't invest at all because they don't understand or they're afraid of, of the risks involved. I think personally, not doing anything is a bigger risk than than doing something. But if we want to go down that road, no, I totally can, agree. I totally agree with yeah. that. And good examples because they apply to commercial real estate as well, right? So one thing, I'll give you an example, really kind of on both things you talked about, I can be an example. One, Florida and Texas have been hit by some large-scale hurricanes over the last year, year and a half. Both of them, the insurance rates have gone up tremendously. And this is in commercial and residential real estate. So those have gone up tremendously in those markets. I don't invest in California. Not that I wouldn't. I just currently don't. I do most of my investing in Atlanta. One challenge we have run into in Atlanta based on, again, what you said, the municipality type stuff. We invest in Atlanta. We invest in Georgia because it's on paper a landlord-friendly state. But again, we had a pandemic. There was an eviction moratorium for a year and a half plus. When that lifted, there has been such a backlog in unprocessed evictions that you have to catch up. And so if your kind of business plan is based on these things being processed in the manner that they're normally processed and then they don't, you have to make adjustments. And so the way we do that is, again, remembering that there's two sides of that coin. There's the in revenue and there's the expense side. And so if we have an increase in our insurance costs, okay, where can we cut some of those others? Or are we maximizing our rents? Can we figure out ways to add in ancillary services? Do we have laundry rooms? Do we have carports? Can we put in garages for people? We look at ways to change that number and move the lever on both sides. And that's how I would say, I guess, in general, the answer to your question is, we just have to look at that from every, if we increase our insurance costs by 30%, all right, what else can we bring down by 30% or where can we make up some of that money on the other side? And the other thing is when we underwrite these things, we do underwrite them with a cushion, but some of these things we're not cushioned for because they're unprecedented or not cushioned for to the level that we're seeing. So in my opinion, that is what asset management means. So from people that don't know in the, in the commercial real estate world, probably most people who have rented had a property manager, right? The person that sits in the office and they go rent the apartment from them. That's usually their front facing interaction. But what I do and my partners as well, we are the asset managers, which is, means we manage the managers. And so we're the ones looking at every line item. We're managing the construction. We're kind of going through and saying, okay, well, here we encountered this problem. What can we do to fix it, you know, kind of in another way? So that's ultimately what asset management is, is because two years ago, asset management was probably pretty easy, right? You just keep watching the rents go up. Don't have to worry about things very much. When you come to a down market like we're in now, you probably have to work three, four times as hard as you would in a hot bull market. And that's the job. That's the whole point. Yep. That's when the money is actually made, right? right? Yeah, that's it. Anyone can do it. And it's easy when everything right. goes up in value. And it's like, hey, when there's actually challenges and you have to yeah. have some skill with this, that's when you earn yeah. your keep there's, from a GP there's side. There's a lot less syndicators out there than there were two years ago right now. I can tell you that. <laughs> a lot of people said, whoa, this is hard now. <laughs> yeah. 
At one point in the United States, there was more realtors than there were single family homes for sale. And it's like, hmm, that seems like a weird little dynamic. That's probably not sustainable. There might be a flag here. But thinking about it from an LP's perspective, so an investor, right? They're going to look at, I think it was the idea of asset management when we think of it. Hey, I have my 401k or my retirement account. I have other investments and I'm trying to think of like, where's the best place for me to store value, to invest, keep up purchasing power, all the stuff we talked about earlier. What does value add? Again, I know your crystal ball is broken and in the shop, just like mine. But when you think about rate of return or IRR, which I think sometimes people get confused looking at these different things. We're like, well, why is the real estate deal different than like what I look at when I have my other investments? If you want to tackle that, you can go for it. But what should they expect into the future? What would you try to set good, healthy expectations, not here's the moon and stars, best case scenario, but what do you think returns on investment would be for value add real estate over the next number of years, right? Is there layers to it? Is it like, hey, we kind of do like a base case, a worst case, a best case scenario. You can take that however you want. And if you want to avoid the question altogether, that's fine too. No, no, I'd be hard pressed to find a question I'll completely avoid. But I think it's a great question, especially for people that are looking to maybe get started as a passive investor. What should I be looking for? And I can tell you, couple of things. One, if you're investing as an LP in a syndication, it should be, it better be governed by the SEC. And so first thing is, if it's not, if you don't get a, a what's called a private placement memorandum, a PPM, if you don't get something that describes exactly what you should expect in this particular deal, run away. It probably won't happen, but if you came across something where someone was like, yeah, come invest in this with me and I have no way they call it a pro forma, but that's the projections as to what we expect to happen. If you're looking at it, I think there are a couple of different important metrics that you might see in a syndication or a fund. And a fund is just a group of assets within one syndication. But basically, there's a couple of things people are going to talk about, and these are good ones for investors who are trying to start out to know. One is cash on cash. Cash on cash is how much cash am I going to get in what's called a distributions in a year based on the amount of money that I put in. So right now, the way the market is, you could probably expect that to be in a general sense, somewhere in the maybe five to 8% cash on cash annually. So for me, I don't look at that as like the most important metric because if you say the 8%, right? And maybe someone's going to say that their deal is higher than that. But say it's 8%, which is a good average, and you put $100,000 into a deal, you're getting $8,000 in that year in distributions. Probably not going to change your life that much, right? It's just not going to shift the needle a ton. But the other things I think are more important. So there's, you mentioned IRR, which is internal rate of return. I personally think an easier way to understand that is AAR, which is average annual return. So IRR for people listening is your return with the time value of money calculated in, meaning the sooner you get the money back, the higher that IRR is going to go up because your assumption would be that you can reinvest. Okay, so that's where those two things differ. Now, IRRs used to be the metric of choice, I think, that a lot of syndicators would put out, but people have shifted to AAR a lot more in the offerings I'm seeing recently. And honestly, I think the reason is because right now, AAR looks better than IRR. So if you look at it and you said, here's that same deal, I put $100,000 in it. At the end of five years, I made an extra $100,000. So my AAR, $100,000 over five years is $20,000, or sorry, 20%, right? So that's a good metric for people to look at. Am I, how much am I going to make on the year? And there's something called the rule of 72. So whatever your annual return is, is if you divide it into 72, that's how long it will take you to double your money. So it's just a quick piece of math for people to look at it and say, okay, how quickly am I going to double your money or double my money? Which brings me to the really, in my mind, maybe the most important metric, which is equity multiple. And that is literally... <laughs> how much is my money going to multiply in the hold time of this investment? And so a good rule of thumb is your money should double every five to seven years. So you might see someone says, we're projecting a 1.8x over five years or whatever it is. But that equity multiple to me is the most important part, especially as when you're 
starting out because what you're trying to do is to use time to increase how much money you have invested, right? So we just put together this thing. It's, it's on social media if people want to see it, but it's kind of a cool layout of, so I basically did $50,000 per year for six years and never put any more money in other than reinvesting what I put in. And at the end of, I'll say it's 20 years, you have turned that 300,000 into 1.8 million. So you can extrapolate that to investing more, investing more than six years. But essentially, if you're looking at it as your money's doubling every six years, these are the kind of returns you can expect to make. So to me, when it comes to investing, the single most important factor is time in the market, whether that's real estate, stock, whatever it is. The single most important thing is how long are you doing it? And so if you're sitting there at home and you're like, this is a cool idea, I'll check it out in the spring. This is a cool idea. Maybe I'll be able to do this next year. You've already missed a year in that time. So I urge people to be a little bit urgent in this and not necessarily go out, find an investment and dump money into it tomorrow, but find out about it. Learn what's out there for you, what's available and, and how you can do this and be proactive. I love that. Yeah, I think ultimately it's get educated, get informed. And then the decision on what the right decision is, is always going to boil down to it's your money. You got to make that call. But if you're well informed, yeah, you're probably going to hopefully make a, a better decision than doing nothing or thinking about it because there's all kinds of different sayings. I'm trying to, I'm spaced on the one I'm wanting to call, but like how you know, you put it off till tomorrow and how tomorrow just continues to yeah. be months and yeah. years. There's, down a, the road. there's a lot of those about time because yeah. it's true. <laughs> yeah, like, I need one of those quotes to come up, but I can't get it out of my brain. What happened to ask about that you think would be important to share with the audience in regards to just real estate in general or some of the things that you've seen or encountered or any, I don't know, stories, lessons learned? Honestly, I think everyone should be invested in real estate in some way. If for no other reason than diversification, and a lot of people don't know this, you can invest in real estate through an IRA. So there are a million different options to get involved. But I think the first question you have to ask yourself as you're looking at getting into real estate is, do I want to be active or do I want to be passive? Maybe I want to be both. But do I want the responsibility that goes along with real estate? Because I have lots of people that sort of talk about with this and they're like, yeah, I was thinking about buying a rental house. I'm like, okay, that's great. Do you want to do that work? Do you want to be the person that's managing that? And if you do, okay, I'll help you if I can. That's fine. But knowing that there are ways to be involved in real estate and achieve returns that way without actually being active is something that I think just a lot of people don't know is available. Yep. I like it. I allow every guest, because I know I've just been peppering you with questions and different things. And hey, I've pushed back on this. Any questions for me from your side, anything you want to chat through, whether it's real estate, vet med related, it can be anything else outside of that as well. But always like to kind of close with, with letting a guest ask questions. Yeah. And I love the questions. I think it's been a great conversation. I guess I would say, because this is, I've been trying to crack and figure out, and again, it doesn't have to necessarily be real estate, but how do we portray to the veterinary community the importance of this stuff, the importance of things like Meredith's Veterinary Financial Summit, the importance of taking control of your own finances, your financial freedom. Because if you're just doing the 401k, it's just not enough. And quite frankly, you're probably losing a lot in fees that you don't know about. It's not necessarily a bad thing to do, but understanding how it all ties in together. And I feel like I'm doing a lot and I'm going to keep doing it and I'm going to try and keep doing more. And I appreciate you having me on your podcast because that's a, another platform. But I think I would ask you, what's your thought? How do we, I believe there needs to be a pretty significant paradigm shift and I just don't know how to make it happen. And maybe it's just going to take a long time. I don't know. I'm not giving up. I'm just looking for ideas. Yeah. I don't have the magic solution. I don't have the big trumpet that we play and then everyone like, oh, I get it. Right. Jason Isaiah just told me that. Yeah. <laughs> right. But what I would say is ultimately, I think everyone is driven by incentives. And I always hold that to be, be true, right? Human nature is what is the incentive here? What is in it for me? And I think inherently, and this sounds bad, but it's not, it's just true. We're all inherently somewhat selfish at times. And so how can we make it to where this makes sense to where it is good for you? And it's something you want to do. I do think, and going back to our, we're not economists, but we're going to chat on some of these big complex issues because of the fact of how expensive 
and how hard life has gotten for a lot of people. I think it just continues to constrict what free cash flow is there to go do anything else. Because when the cost of living is so high, when trying to buy a house is so high, even rents are high, food is high, right? Try buying a new vehicle. It's crazy, especially if you have to finance it because you don't have the cash on hand and you're paying eight, nine percent for a loan on that stuff, right? A, there has to be this understanding that, yeah, if you start earlier, and I know this has been beaten in everyone's head for so long, you don't have to do as much. And I love the idea of what you talked about. It's like, hey, six years amount, this is material, this really helps. But I think it's just an education on answering what is money and why is the money fundamentally broken? That's kind of been my mission. That's why I do what I do. That's why I talk about the Bitcoin thing and the other stuff. But it's not all or nothing. It's not like, hey, you should just do Bitcoin and nothing else. Don't ever think about anything outside of that. But if people understood just the way the system is structured, I loved what you talked about with Dave Ramsey. I don't think Dave Ramsey has built his business taking his own advice, right? (laughs) Dave Ramsey is really helpful for people to get out of really bad situations if they are just completely irresponsible and cannot hold themselves accountable. Him yelling at them, it's good. And there's a lot of people that need that. But it's like at some point you kind of graduate from that and you need to go and do some different things. And I think that's where people get stuck is they just take that same advice. Well, if I really work hard, going back to what you talked about earlier, if I really work hard and do the right things, I'll get there. Well, sadly, you're going to feel like you're on this hamster wheel. You're going to wake up and you're going to be like, oh, crap, I'm not where I thought I was. And I did everything I was told I was supposed to do. The world that the little old grandma that worked at a school was a teacher for 40 years and dies with tons of money. That just isn't going to happen anymore. And there's a couple of reasons for that. And the world has changed. And part of the changes, you're going to get me on a crazy long rant, but there's just changes because fundamentally at the core, at the crux of it is the money is broken and we're looking for ways to store value in a way that we haven't been able to, or haven't been forced to do quite the same way as we have in the past. And I will say real estate is one of those things. There are a lot of tax benefits and we didn't necessarily get into all the complexity and some of the different things there that I know that you could, maybe it's around two that we could get into like why, but you can use leverage, which is helpful. It can amplify returns. And then it is what you actually keep from those things because of the way that depreciation and some of these other things work with real estate can be really lucrative and really helpful for someone to retain the money that they make even from that standpoint. So understanding what are kind of these people call them hacks and different things. It's like, no, this is just the way the world works because in a, again, credit-based economy, you want to be able to say, okay, what are the rules? Even if I don't like them and I might not like them, but what are the rules? How are the things being played? And then how can I set myself up to take advantage of that? And that's partially the way that I look at it is they are not going to all of a sudden find this fiscal responsibility in Washington. We are $33.5 trillion in debt. We're going to continue to accelerate that. We're going to run a deficit every single year. We're not going to cut entitlements. We're not going to cut spending. We're going to continue to devalue the money. So what is that going to mean? Assets are going to go up in price. And so it's like, where can I find and where can I store the wealth and the things that I've created so that I can buy stuff in the future? Because that's all that money is, right? Money is not really what we want. It's what money buys us and what money gets us is what we actually want. And so the things that you need to figure out is where can you go store that value so that you can actually live and accomplish the things that you want to do. And it's not going to be saving it in cash in the bank and getting four and a half percent on your high yield savings account. That just ain't it, right? And so I think for most people, it's touching the stove, getting burned. And it's like, you can only do so much, but you just have to continue to be out there and be vocal. I do think within veterinary medicine, and I've talked about this a long time, and I, you even mentioned it earlier, the bigger conferences, if you're listening to this and you do set programming, you need to bring in these kind of things. If you want to actually fix some of the fundamental issues within veterinary medicine, people need to understand and learn what is money and how to manage it and be better at it. That's not saying that they are going to all of a sudden get dramatically better overnight. But if you actually care and want to solve some of the fundamental issues, you have to get people financially in a place where they feel comfortable. And if we don't do that, all these other tangential issues are still going to be an issue, still going to be an issue, still going to be an issue. And so to me, it's just continual push to have more content. That's not people being promotional and all this other stuff, but just coming in and just saying, this is the way that this stuff works. Ask the question and like distill it down and just start there. What is money? I love that question. And there's hours and hours and hours and hours of content around and understanding why we are in the system that we are. So I guess the answer to your question is I don't have a perfect answer other than continuing to push. And I think as a whole, kind of the veterinarian community needs to come to terms with the idea that you have to make some changes and it's not necessarily on the, Hey, we need to change this or that. You can try to raise prices and you can try to raise 
compensation and do all these things. And that's all important and that should be done. But at the end of the day, it comes back to personal responsibility of each person of how they're going to manage their own stuff. And a lot of the things that people do, they do probably overspend. And that might not be nice to hear, but maybe you need to make some sacrifices. Maybe it's delayed gratification. And that's a hard pill to swallow. But I think there's some truth to that. Yeah, 100% agree. And I think ultimately the answer is more education is really kind of comes down to we just have to keep I guess, beating the drum or whatever you want to call it. But you said one thing that I want to highlight in that you said sort of being selfish in the sense that, and I don't think you were saying it in the way that I'm about to reference it, but you're saying like people are talking what's in it for me. That's how we have to educate is, is by telling them what's in it for me. That's what I'm asking for. Be selfish. Think about yourself, but you need to think about your future self and not today I want that new car or today I want that I'm going to say this and some of my friends are going to get mad at me. I want another horse. But <laughs> you should be selfish about it. You should start thinking about this on your own or thinking about yourself and your finances and not just look at it like, I guess it's going to work out somehow. But I think you have to do that by educating yourself. Yeah, we can't care more than someone else does. And I think that's one of the big things going back to my days as an advisor, like there's a lot of people have said, no, one will care about my money as much as me. And I push back a little bit on that because I think really good advisors that truly care about who they work with, and there's lots of good ones out there, they really do care, but they can't care more than the person they're trying to help. Because at the end of the day, the change has to happen with that person. They can be there as a resource. And the same way, Jason, you and I can't care more than someone else to get them to take action. At the end of the day, they've got to feel the pinch or start to come to grips with, hey, I got to make a change. I think that's another interesting thing about people that have come from a background where they didn't maybe come from money. They feel that sense of urgency of I'm not going to go through what I felt. And again, not saying that parents did a bad job. They did the best that they could, right? In the situation they were presented with. But I think there is just is a different mindset. And I think you've seen that historically in the United States with immigrants as well, right? They come in and you hear so many stories. My parents didn't know English, didn't do this. They opened the store. They worked their tail off for years and years and years and years, Right. And I think sometimes people struggle with that if they've had a, an upbringing where maybe their parents were more financially successful and they just think, oh, it'll just magically happen for me. And sometimes it doesn't. So I think there has to be a sense of urgency as well. But yeah, education, sense of urgency and action. Ultimately, you'll be all right if you do that. Where can people connect, follow up, ask more questions? I know you talked about the piece of the math of like the 50,000. Where's that held? Where can people see that? graphic. I'll try to link to it because I think that'd be great. We'll get that sort of everywhere. It'll be on the website for sure. Our website is www.larkcapital.com, L-A-R-K, or you can email me, Jason at Lark Capital, and we just connect, set up a time to talk. I really, really do feel passionate about helping people, especially in the veterinary community, figure this stuff and get themselves on the right track. I love it. Thank you for the time. Uh, really, really appreciate it. And we'll chat again soon. Yeah. Love it. Thank you so much, Isaiah. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment tax or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. However, you are intelligent enough to make decisions for yourself. So I do encourage you to dig in, learn for yourself, and not just outsource every decision that you make. You should talk to your professional team if you have one before implementing anything that I talk about, but also make sure they know what they're talking about. Push them, question them. That's healthy. That's okay. Oh yeah, and you should probably own and learn a little bit about that Bitcoin thing. The biggest compliment you can give to me is to share the show with a friend or the podcast if there's another episode that you really like. That helps folks find it. That helps it grow. Um, reviews are critical. The Apple Podcast is the platform that's predominantly used for how people find the show. So if you have three minutes, love the show, please head over, give us five stars if you believe that's what we earned. That would help more people find the show. Also, if you're new, go to YouTube. It's a channel. Uh, putting up all the videos there as well. Sometimes it's going to be more interactive. Other times, it's just going to be the conversation. So vainly, I want to get 100 subscribers so I get the vanity URL. That's the goal. We're on our way, but not quite there yet. For all of today's links information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can also subscribe via your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss any episodes in the future. And finally, if you'd like more information, insights, or have the ability to, for your voice to be heard, join the Facebook group. You can search for the Veterinarian Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll to the bottom, about your host, click on the Facebook icon. And thanks again for listening. I appreciate you. All right. So there are a lot of great job postings that I want to get to. And so we're going to start off with Bayside Hospital for Animals. Great work-life balance in beautiful Fort Walton Beach, Florida. No weekends, Monday to Friday, eight to five, no on-call or emergencies. 
It's an appointment only here. Currently a two and a half doctor practice, new owner in 2021, bringing some fresh life into the hospital. The new owner had been there for six years prior working, so definitely understands the team, the processes in the community. Lots of investment in people and new equipment. ProSal is the pay structure. Far too many benefits for me to list. Email BaysideVet251 at Yahoo or call 850-864-1857. Join a thriving, growing, small animal practice in Vermont on the Quebec border. Full-time ideal, part-time is considered. The idea is to start with yes with the team, patients and clients in outdoor woman's paradise while uh, being able to practice high-quality medicine. Compensation is write your own structure within production capabilities. Literally, it is the owner wants to t- find the right person and is happy to negotiate, chat through, and find the right fit. If you want autonomy and a boss that enjoys teaching, reach out to Newport Veterinary Hospital. You can email newportveterinaryhospital at gmail.com. North Central Indiana, looking for an oasis in the chaos? Who isn't, right? Come join the amazing team at Fulton County Veterinary Clinic. They strive to foster a fun, fast-paced work environment while providing quality patient care. They utilize the support staff efficiently so that the doctor is available to practice medicine and do what you're trained to do in less time and paperwork, which is great. Lots of investment in new equipment and technology to support you, full-time or part-time available. Small animal and exotics are both seen there, so no ER, no on-call, no weekends, competitive salary with sign-on bonus offered, and far too many benefits to list. Go to Fulton County Veterinary Clinic, so type that in and you'll find the job posting there. Last but not least, join Watertown Animal Hospital, personable, small animal veterinarian wanted for well-established current five-doctor mixed animal practice in northern New York, which is an outdoors person's paradise. Again, two of those. So if you like the outdoors, you can look at Vermont or New York. They have plenty of support staff with six CSRs, six licensed technicians, four animal caretakers, two technical assistants, hospital associate, or sorry, hospital assistant, a practice manager, and a bookkeeper. Focuses on mentorship and investment on the people and the technology. That's been a strategic initiative by the leadership team. No on-call, a 24-hour ER less than an hour away. Salary based on experience, but no less than 95,000. Can be straight salary, pro-sal considered. Want to discuss that with the right person. Tons of benefits. Again, too much to list. Please reach out to watertownpetcare.com for that option as well. So again, if you find a role or a job or talk to anyone and it helps you in any way, I would love to hear that feedback. So please reach out. Let me know what you're able to do. And I will continue to post these. So if you are an owner, reach out to me, let me know. And we'll go from there. And until I hit a capacity of I can't keep recording these, I want to let people know who are high quality owners around the country looking for great help. So with that, we'll talk soon.